You're listening to Therapy for Your Money, a podcast about all things money and finance for therapy practice owners. If you want to feel confident and in control of your financial life, then you've come to the right spot. I'm your host, Julie Harris. I'm an accountant and the owner of Green Oak Accounting. My firm specializes in working with private practices across the U.S., and my team and I have worked with hundreds of private practice owners. I'm on a mission to share all the best practices I've learned along the way because I want you to have a profitable private practice. All right. Hi, everyone. Today, we are talking all about managing your financial anxiety as a business owner. My guest today is Lindsay Brian Podvin. Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Julie. I'm really happy to be here. Great. So tell us a little bit about yourself. You've got a lot of things uh, going on. (laughs) Yeah, I think like many therapists, particularly private practice owners, we wear a lot of hats. I'm a trained clinical social worker. So I've got my background, my MSW, and then I was cross-trained in financial therapy and in financial social work. And in my private practice, I was telling Julie before we hit record, I kind of have two arms of my business. I have the clinical arm where I mostly work with couples around financial anxiety and financial communication, helping them to cultivate a healthy relationship with money so money can become a strong pillar in their relationship. And then I started getting all these emails from private practice therapists who said, Lindsay, you know, can I pick your brain? Can you tell me how you came up with a podcast? And can you tell me a little bit about how you did your marketing and tell me a little bit about how you landed on your prices? And I had enough of those inquiries that I said, you know what, it's time to lean into that. And so I now have a consulting or coaching arm of of my practice where I help private practice providers work through the emotional and psychological blocks around building private practices and making them profitable and sustainable and not in one of those like gross make 10 K's in, in 14 days overnight kind of a thing, but in a sustainable way that aligns with your values as a therapist. So those are the two arms of my work. Clinically, I work mostly with couples and then my coaching or consulting arm, I work with private practice therapists. So I'm just so excited to talk to you because I love this topic so much. Most private practice owners that I've encountered in my firm, they've got some kind of anxiety around money and it's all not always uh, what we think and who we think, right? Some of our bigger clients have the most financial anxiety sometimes. So I'm really excited to have you on. So I had the pleasure to see you speak at Therapy Reimagined recently and you talked about the different archetypes. And I would love for you to tell us a little bit about those. Absolutely. So there are four financial archetypes. And like we know from all assessments, from all categorization systems, they certainly aren't perfect and they don't encapsulate every single thing about every single person. But what they do offer, these four different archetypes, is a little bit of validation and language around why a person might be a certain way in regards to their relationship with money. So these archetypes were kind of a jumping off point from Dr. Brad Klontz's research around money scripts, where he found these four kind of money scripts again and again come up in his client work. And his work is more disordered based. And because I come from a social work background, I'm more strengths based. So I work with my clients to find what are some of the benefits that having a particular money script might have? And how can that be helpful and offer some strength when you are looking 
looking at these archetypes. So it's not all about what's bad and what's wrong about your relationship with money, but also what are some of the benefits of fitting into a particular money archetype? So over time, I developed these four archetypes that encapsulate some of the strengths and also some of the challenges around our relationship with money. And broadly, they break down to four different categories, which I'm sure we can dig into a little bit more, but they are blissfully ignorant, admirer, doomsday prepper, and spender. Okay, yes, let's dig in because I I just love these and I love that there's not a right or a wrong Mm -hmm. answer, right? So it's not like one is good and one is bad. It's just kind of how you are. And I recognize myself in in these and I also recognize my husband in this too. So yes, yes. All right. So blissfully ignorant. Tell us a little bit about that. So blissfully ignorant, they tend to agree with statements like it's uncomfortable for me to engage with my money or it's not okay for me to have money when others have less than me. They tend to agree with this idea that they don't really like engaging with their money, but they have a little bit of this Pollyanna-ish belief that if if they don't look at it, it'll it'll just sort of sort itself out. So I got to close my eyes or maybe peek at my bank account with one eye and I kind of, you know, cross my fingers and hope that it'll all work out because there's something about engaging with money that makes me really uncomfortable. And Julie, this that's actually my category, which I think a is lot of people it? find surprising is that when I'm stressed, when I'm anxious, I don't want to look at my money. So it's taken a lot of time and energy and work for me to get really comfortable engaging with my money. And anytime I feel a little bit of out of balance with my relationship with money, I go right back into those blissfully ignorant tendencies of like, I don't want to look, I don't want to know. But yeah, that's our, that's our blissfully ignorant category. So that's funny. Cause I recognize my husband in that one. I'd rather <laughs> sure. just not look like you deal with it. I'll just pretend it, it doesn't exist. But so I see this blissfully ignorant manifest itself in our clients. When we, for example, we just had a client come on board who has not filed taxes in 10 years, Ooh. 10 years. So like just if I don't look at it, if I don't open up the letters from the IRS, it doesn't exist. And that doesn't make the problem go away. But yeah, I, I, I'll bet that client would recognize herself here. Yeah. And statistically, therapists, helpers, and healers are more likely to be blissfully ignorant than other professions. So it makes perfect sense, Julie, that a lot of your clients are like, oh, that's me. <laughs> right. Where I'd rather not look, right? Where you send mm-hmm. them reports and like, well, I didn't really look at it just mm-hmm. because, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, right. That would make sense that most therapists uh, fall under that. So how about money admirer? So the money admirer is a person who tends to agree with statements like things would be better if I had more money or I, if I make more money, then life will be better. And they tend to be kind of your classic workaholics. They tend to kind of get in this hamster wheel cycle of once I hit X income, then I'll feel Y. I'll feel happier, less stressed, more calm, more present. But then when they hit that number, when they hit that goal, they've associated so much with that goal that they didn't work on some of the deeper stuff. And then they just increase that next money goal. So they're like, okay, well, I thought it was, I needed to make a 10 K month, but really I think I need to make an 18 K month. So they kind of end on this perpetual cycle. And for the admirer, it's really about valuing the idea of money. They tend to associate money with things like security, but also risk-taking. So it's an interesting dynamic for the admirer to hold. 
So interesting. So the, you're saying even if they get to that goal, then that's not usually enough. Then there's right. a new goal. Okay. So what's the feeling like if, if the goal was 10K a month, what happens when they get there? Nothing? They get there and they think they, they might have that moment of cool. I've hit this goal, but then they kind of look around at their life and things haven't changed. So they tend to associate like, if I make more money, things in my life will get better. Right. That's a message that our Western society has really sold to us. It's this idea that more money equals happiness. And we know that in, in a lot of cases, I'm a huge proponent that we all probably need more money, that money can solve a lot of our problems, but money in and of itself doesn't create happiness. I do think that there's a link between bringing in enough money to cover your basics and have a cushion that does lead to happiness, but I'm talking about above and beyond that. These are the folks who think that that next level of money is going to fix things for them, but they haven't really done some of the deeper work at going, well, what else might be going on that I'm hoping money will solve this particular problem? Okay. And so in a business perspective, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, sure. it sounds like this, this uh, money admirer might be the kind of person who thinks, well, if I just get this last loan, I can fix everything. Or if I just get this new uh, tool, or this new, you know, Google ads person or whatever, like the next thing, maybe that will solve everything. Am I on the right track here? You're a hundred percent on the right track. These business owners tend to be the ones who are really susceptible to marketing that is money-based. Like, like I'd mentioned, Oh, make, you know, 20 K in 30 days or hit a six figure year. They tend to really go for that type of marketing. And then they also tend to not really trust themselves, which is so fascinating because these are workaholics, but they tend to say, I'm going to follow somebody else's path because it's proven rather than carve out my own. So they are likely to hire a coach or purchase a course and, and try and follow that path rather than kind of tune inward to what they need to cultivate a healthy business for themselves. They tend to be more likely to like follow somebody else's lead. That's so interesting. What I've seen on the financial side is that only the the top line, the goal matters, right? Like, oh, I've 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 gotten to ten thousand or a hundred thousand or whatever that goal is, regardless of what the profit is. And in accounting, right, you, the profit is what you get to take home. So the the top line goal it does matter, but if there's no profit, it really it doesn't matter. You can make you can make more being um, you know at ten thousand than at a hundred thousand sometimes, depending on the expenses in the business. Yes, exactly. All right. So how about the doomsday prepper? So the doomsday prepper is your classic penny pincher, right? These are the folks who tend to get a bad rap around money. These are your, your coupon cutters. These are the people um, who really like to hold on tightly to their money. And their idea behind this is that they really like to have a cushion. They like to have safety. For them, money means security, but it's also this double-edged sword of it means security, but it also means anxiety and privacy. So they tend to be, these are like those stories you hear about where you live next door to a neighbor for decades and you find out they were a millionaire, but you had no idea because they've been driving this beat up old car forever. They've been riding a bike to work for years and years. These are the types of people where you're like, what? I had no idea because they really keep their cards and money close to their chest. So it's this weird thing where they tend to be more financially secure than a lot of the other archetypes, but they're so terrified of doing something wrong that they don't actually get to enjoy 
all of the benefits of being financially secure because they're so worried that if I spend, I'm going to make a mistake or if I spend, I'll never be able to turn off the faucet. So that's the doomsday prepper. So that, that's so interesting to me because one during COVID, like in the in those early, early days of COVID, obviously we were fielding tons of calls from our clients who were, had different stages of worry. And I would say our most stressed out clients were doomsday preppers where we would look into the accounts and like they had sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars in there. So there was a good cushion, but they were so afraid that it was just going to all disappear up in smoke and everything was going to be lost. Like they were the most stressed out. And that was, that came as a big surprise to me at that time. And that again is why I talk with both my clients who are, you know, clinical clients and my clients who are private practice therapists that money is highly emotional and psychological, right? Logically, intellectually, we could look at a bank account that has 100K sitting in it and we could look at a bank account that has 5K sitting in it and we would go, hmm, the one who has 100K is probably a little bit more safe than the one that has 5 Okay. But our emotions don't always line up with it. And with the doomsday preppers, it's interesting, right? They think once I have an emergency fund, it'll be okay. But then they're like, well, I I should probably bulk up instead of six months. I really need eight months or I really need 12 months. It's this fear. There's so much anxiety that lives within them. So again, money is highly emotional and psychological. And I think it's like, you know, my, my kind of rule of thumb is it's like 90% emotions and psychology and 10% bookkeeping and math. Right. And so, and, and for doomsday preppers, that's where we'll often ask like, okay, are there any more accounts? Is there anything else? Well, there's this one account over here and there's some money saved over there. Like there's usually little breadcrumbs, right? I, I, uh, if it was in the yard, it'd be just a bunch of holes in the yard with like different piles of cash and coins and what, you know, whatever in there. So there is usually a bunch of different accounts and retirement vehicles and, and pots of money. Yeah. And one other thing for business owners is how I see this show up is that they are the ones who are often terrified to outsource, right? They don't want to hire an accounting firm. They don't want to hire an assistant. They don't want to hire a VA because they're so worried about spending money and they'd much rather like DIY it. So these are the folks who sometimes end up shooting themselves in the foot because again, financially, they could probably afford to bring on a professional to do some of the heavy lifting, but they're so scared of spending. So I just wanted to mention how it kind of shows up in business owners. That's so true. And I I think doomsday preppers are also more worried about hiring, right? They're a lot more cautious about hiring, whether it's a first clinician or the 20th clinician. Like, am I ready? Do we have enough clients for them? Can I afford it? Even though there is that cushion and there is money, they'll usually wait longer than they should, right? So they'll start once things are already really dire and they're so overworked that they don't know what to do anymore. That's when they'll start the process of hiring versus a couple of weeks before that when they still have time. Yeah. How about money spenders? The spenders are the ones, they're different than the admirers in that the spenders like what money affords them. So these are the people who tend to agree with statements like, it's hard for me to show up empty handed at a party. Even when I don't mean to, I tend to buy brand name items. These are the people who get a rush out of spending. So the admirer likes the idea of having money and the spender likes the idea of what money affords them. 
So the spender can, you know, they, they tend to also associate money with happiness, um, with fulfillment, um, and with experiences. So they tend to be actually great counterparts in business or in romantic relationships with your doomsday prepper or with your blissfully ignorant. I think that's a myth that a lot of people think that you both need to be the same archetype in order to have a happy, healthy relationship. But I often find that they can balance each other out. Of, of course, it might take some work, but they definitely can balance balance each other out. But in business, these are the folks who tend to look toward outward appearances of success. So they tend to spend more money on things like the aesthetics of their uh-huh. website or the aesthetics of their Instagram. They want things to look really professional because for them, that signals to others that they are successful. So they tend to be outward spenders in that way and they tend to show it in their business in that way. The other way spenders can get in trouble in their business is they tend to do this thing that is Oh, it's a tax write-off. It doesn't matter. And they forget that like a tax write-off does not mean that that item is free, but they kind of use that as an excuse and that can sometimes get them into trouble. Okay. So how I see this manifest on the accounting side is lots of spending on decor and new furniture, right? So where every couple of months, like, oh, well, these three rooms need new furniture uh, or fancy cars, like the, the outward items, right? The, the websites are being redone often the furniture so that's interesting and sometimes the you know those items can be too expensive right so they go a little bit too high just to to have not just a car a really nice car and that that can get them in trouble so i've asked you this question um i asked you before we recorded is someone typically the same archetype in their personal life and in their in their business yeah, they they do tend to be the same. They just might show up differently. So let's take um, the doomsday prepper, for example. They may be in their personal life, the ones I mentioned who are like cutting coupons for the grocery store. They're the ones who, when it's safe to go out, they'd prefer to cook a meal instead of go out with their friends to eat. So these things do tend to kind of cross over in your personal life and in your business life. Got it. And so, but in marriages, that's okay. Different archetypes work well. Totally. Totally. I think there's this, again, this myth of like, oh, I'm a saver and he's a spender. We'll never make it work. And it's like, yeah, that's an easy kind of trope to lie on about why you are struggling. But I think it's it's one of those things where opposites can attract and they can balance each other out. It just may, might take a little bit more work, which is again, okay. I think money is a healthy part of a relationship. Um, and that's what I work with my clients on. When so... Yeah, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have self-identified with one of these archetypes. Mm -hmm. So once you know that about yourself, how can you use that um, in a positive way in your business, for example? So what I like to think about is that we have landed in these archetypes as a way of protecting ourselves. These come from safety. So if we rewind back to childhood and we think about why would this archetype be protective in some way, let's take the admirer, for example. If in childhood you grew up in a household where you were constantly told things by your caregivers, things like we can't do that because we can't afford it, or so-and-so can do that because they have money, you might have absorbed this message that money will make things better. So therefore, as you grow up into an adult, your brain says, oh, in order to be better, to 
have safety, to have security, I need to accumulate more money. And for me, money means safety and having more money means that I will be happier or I'll be, I'll be able to enjoy my life better. So first, just acknowledging that we end up in these archetypes as a way to protect ourselves. And there's no one that is better than the other. Um, so that's kind of step one. And then step two is acknowledging whether or not the archetype is still helping you or whether it is holding you back in some way. So if we stick with the admirer, is it helping you to work 80 hours a week? And if so, cool, go for it. I know very few people who it's healthy to work 80 hours a week for, but you might be an outlier. But if working 80 hours a week and chasing this, you know, random income goal that some Instagram guru told you you need to meet in order to be successful is not making you happy, then checking back in and saying, okay, admirer archetype, thanks for trying to keep me safe. But I actually can look at my numbers and go, you know what? It's safe for me to work 40 hours a week, or maybe even it's safe for me to work 32 hours a week. So starting to cultivate a relationship with your numbers so you can make decisions that are evidence-based, which us therapists love to do yes. instead of emotionally based, that makes it easier. So looking at how is that archetype helping me and how is it harming me and saying like a little affirmation, a little thank you to that archetype for trying to keep you safe and then moving forward in a way that is healthy for you and for your family. I love that. So having that internal dialogue of like, okay, I realize what's going on here and this is not helpful in this instance. So I'm going to move on. Yep. Okay. So do you have any recommendations when it comes to financial literacy education? Yeah, I think it's one of those things that's really personal because there are so many personal finance people out there. You know, I just had Julie on my podcast and we talked about, you know, the, the perils sometimes of Google. <laughs> um, and, and I think one thing to keep in mind when you are entering into your financial literacy journey is that the ones that are going to come up first are the more popular ones. And the more popular ones are the ones who tend to have blanket statements. Things like you need a six-month emergency fund. If you buy a latte, you're a bad person. <laughs> Those things are really buzzworthy and they, they rise to the top because they are easily applicable as a blanket statement. But as therapists, we know that we are not, you know, blanket statements usually don't work for us. So take some time and do a little bit of digging to find a personal finance person who resonates with you. So you may resonate with some of that hard, tough love that is really popular in the personal finance space, or you might find, might find yourself going, you know what, that doesn't work for me. Fear and shame and blame actually isn't a motivator. I need somebody who has ideals that are more aligned with me. And then you might look for, let's say, a feminist personal finance writer or a feminist personal finance book and using some of the, the things that are important to you and then plus personal finance in Google is going to pull up more relatable results. So things like shame-free personal finance or intersectional personal finance, those are going to generate results of people who are more aligned with your values and who are going to teach money in a way that fits better with you. I love it. And there's some advice that really it applies across the board, like having an emergency fund, mm -hmm. paying down debt, investing for retirement or for the future. Those are your, those can be found across all the different platforms and they're always, that's always good advice. Yeah. So what do you say to therapists who might feel like they have to have their own financial house in order, in order to speak to their clients about finances? 
Okay. This answer is going to be a little woo. So <laughs> buckle up. I, I lean on a lot of different things when I'm working with my clients. And one branch that I lean on is astrology. And even if you don't believe in it, that's perfectly fine. But there is this person, this planet um, in, in astrology called Chiron, C-H-R-I-O-N. And they are known as the wounded healer. And to me, that is a beautiful metaphor that you can use if your personal house is not in order financially, but you want to work with other clients and help them. This is the idea. Chiron is the idea that we can be human. We can be, you know, hurting, we can be wounded, and we can still have the power to heal others. We can almost use our own journeys to help others on their way. We don't have to be perfect in order to have good messaging in order to be helpful to others. I love it. So, so well put. So, and I would agree wholeheartedly, you no matter where you are in your finances, like, someone else has been there, someone else is better off, worse off, it's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. Lindsay, what is your favorite business book and why? You asked that question and I was like, Wah. I wanted to give a therapist answer, which is like, it depends. And it definitely does <laughs> depend. But I will share what what book kind of got me started on being interested in personal finance. And it was um, an oldie. It was The Millionaire Next Door. I found it in high school, um, kind of hidden on the bookshelf at my, my family home. And it was so interesting, right? If we think about our money stories, because I saw the title of that book, The Millionaire Next Door. And I was like, I can't believe we have a book in our house that has the word millionaire in it, right? I had associated like greed and fear and sliminess with the millionaire next door. And I read it kind of in, in secrecy because I didn't know what I was going really? to find. Okay. Totally. And it blew my mind that it was, it totally debunked all of those myths that I had associated with the word millionaire. And it's interesting, as I say it out loud, I never asked my mom why we had that book in the house in the first place. But to me, that was such an eye-opening book that the idea of what I think most Americans picture of a millionaire, of a person with like a, a super fancy car and a big house and a, you know, a C-suite isn't actually the reality. The reality of most millionaires is that they live really modest lifestyles and it's not in a penny-pinching frugal way. It's in a really intentional way. And that for me was a game changer about working on my own money story. So, so that was what kind of kicked off my journey. That was an amazing answer. What a what a well thought out answer. And <laughs> I have to say, on the accounting side, after you know doing accounting for many, many years, it's often the flashiest people who have the least uh, amount of personal you know wealth that mm -hmm. that has been my experience at least. Totally. Totally um, agree. So mm -hmm. very interesting perspective. It's usually not you not who you expect to be really wealthy who actually is. Yeah. All right, Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on. I've enjoyed so much chatting with you. Um, can you tell our listeners where they can find more information about you and your coaching program? 
Absolutely. So my business is called Mind Money Balance, M-I-N-D. I'm super active over on Instagram. Of course, you can find me on my website. And what I like to offer anybody who hears me on a podcast is that I wrote a book. It's called The Financial Anxiety Solution, where I talk about the archetypes that Julie and I talked about today. And I really talk about the emotional and psychological side of money. And if you buy that book and send me proof of purchase, then I will send you a free training on how to make sure you are spending in alignment with your values. So to find more information about that, you go to my website, mindmoneybalance.com slash podcast, and it will tell you all the information you need to know there about how to send proof of purchase to me to get your free training. Perfect. Thank you, Lindsay. I enjoyed our time together and I hope to talk to you soon. Take care. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Julie. If you need some accounting help, head over to therapyforyourmoney.com and click on the Green Oak Accounting button. There you can find out lots of information about my accounting firm and all of our specialized services for private practice owners. The information contained in this podcast represents the host and guest general opinions and should not be construed as personalized accounting and tax advice. Listeners should consider all facts and circumstances before applying this information and seek appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. Any info provided does not constitute accounting, tax, or legal advice.